If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Liz Russell booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dana Weeks and Dave Woodard. Here's Scott Thompson. <laughs> hey, it's Monday. Good afternoon. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson. Thanks for joining us. Great to have you here. Bonnie Wright, number 187 on the top 200 singers of all time in Rolling Stone magazine. I'm not sure we're going to make it, people. All right. Uh, we do have lots to talk about today. Man, there is lots of stuff going on. Uh, where do you want to start? Um, the Prime Minister and uh, the Premier. Doug Ford and Justin Trudeau in Mississauga earlier today. Uh, remember when a couple of years ago we were waiting in line for vaccines and whatever because Big Pharma kind of uh, was out of Canada. Now a big announcement in Mississauga that AstraZeneca is setting up shop in uh, Mississauga, which is great news uh, because it's it's more industry, it's better health sciences, better paying jobs. It helps the hub that obviously the greater Toronto-Hamilton area uh, already is. But uh, we're going to play you some clips. This was uh, the Premier Doug Ford this morning, uh, or earlier today, rather this afternoon, on the announcement of AstraZeneca setting up shop, a research and R&D hub in Mississauga. This significant investment adds to the substantial investment that AstraZeneca has made in Canada since 2021 and will create 500 new great paying jobs for Ontarians. It will increase the number of clinical trials in oncology and immunology, helping to accelerate the development of innovative therapeutic drugs and vaccines for patients in Ontario, but also around the world. And uh, the Prime Minister on uh, the investment being made and, again, what it means for uh, Ontario and Canada to be back in this game. AstraZeneca is making a major investment to expand their research and development hub here in Mississauga. And it'll continue its important research on cancers, on COVID-19, and chronic kidney diseases, amongst many, many others. The company will also create a new hub to research rare diseases. And with tomorrow being Rare Disease Day, it couldn't be timelier. Did you know it was Rare Disease Day? Uh, anyway, uh, this is uh, great news considering where we were three years ago uh, when the Prime Minister broke us the news that we didn't have access to uh, uh, COVID-19 vaccines because we don't produce them anymore. Oddly enough, it's AstraZeneca. And you might remember AstraZeneca in Oxford and in, in UK uh, uh, discovery way back when and, um, and, and, and was the very first vaccine that was really on the market and, and, and was used to, to vaccine, uh, uh, to vaccinate rather a great, a great number of people in the UK. And that was prior to the Pfizer and the Moderna coming out and they had the new technology, the mRNA vaccines. Uh, but you might remember that way back when, that all of a sudden nobody wanted AstraZeneca anymore because NASI 
and Health Canada were giving conflicting information. Too many cooks in the kitchen, too many scientists that weren't muzzled. And, you know, they would say, I think, no less than six times there was conflicting information between Health Canada and NASI, uh, who advise on immunizations and such, about which vaccines to take. And as a result, AstraZeneca was just left on the shelf. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how this all pans out and what exactly AstraZeneca ends up doing here. But again, uh, great news that they are um, setting up shop in in southern Ontario. All right. The other big story, when the uh, prime minister, as soon as the question and answer period opened up, it once again was about Chinese interference in Canadians uh, and Canada's elections. And and not even uh, more so on top of that, uh, a new report in regard to actually identifying one of the candidates who uh, allegedly received funds from uh, organizations affiliated with the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, Here's what uh, the Prime Minister had to say defending his MP. Let me start by being very, very clear. There are 1.7 million Canadians who proudly trace their origins back to China. Those Canadians should always be welcomed as full Canadians and encouraged to stand for office, to get involved in their communities and to take on part of the leadership of this country. That's one of the great things about this country. Let me say that we are extraordinarily lucky and happy to have a member of parliament like Han Dong uh, in our midst, serving his community, serving our country alongside Chinese Canadian MPs from different parts of the country alongside an extraordinary diverse group of, uh, of MPs who are proud Canadians even as they trace their origins to elsewhere around the world. And that is as it should be. Wow. Um, so there you have a reporter asking about whether the Liberal Party or he knew about this person's affiliation with movements tied to the Chinese Communist Party. And the Prime Minister, when someone was asking and concerned about security and transparency, he played the race card. Uh, I mean, my goodness, how can you do that? How can you do that? Uh, Here's what Melissa Lantzman, uh, MP, Conservative MP, Opposition MP, had to say. Prime Minister's reaction first was to attack the whistleblowers, and then it was asking questions about uh, election interference itself, undermining democracy. And then he shrugged off the the, the reporting uh, uh, of CSIS allegations as inaccurate. But these reports from media, his government can no longer hide from what they knew and when they knew it, because the reporting is clear. All right, there you have it. Uh, and, and it just amazes me how this prime minister creates divisiveness by just not taking responsibilities for his own actions. And we see it time and time and time again. And the questions are being asked, and the prime minister is having a hard time answering the questions on how his tone uh, in uh, for China has changed. It's simple. Uh, <laughs> he supports them. They support him. End of story. It is... 
Liz Hamilton today here fighting for truth and justice right down the center of everything and and, and just trying to um, educate as I go. Here's an interesting note from Brad says, also, uh, now the truth came out today that a person getting COVID-19 has better protection than having two COVID-19 shots. The house of cards will soon be completely face down on the ground. Natural immunity was always better than any shot, any vaccine. That's science, says Brad. <laughs> Uh, maybe now, but certainly not at the beginning of this. Um, what Brad is failing to understand is that we are on what now? The half or sixth or seventh or eighth version or uh, uh, edition of this virus, uh, variant of this virus. Uh, everything post-Delta, meaning the Omicron variants, spread quicker, but they weren't as deadly. Now, because they've spread quicker, natural immunity has formed, and that is the most dominant form of COVID. It isn't Delta or or any of those other variants that were in year one, or two for that matter, uh, that were killing people. Um, Brad seems to forget all of the people that did die in that first year before a vaccination was readily available. Uh, at that point, there was no vaccine for COVID, that's why it killed people. As this all evolves and the science evolves and the variants evolve, the faster spreading Omicron pushed the deadlier variants out. More people got it, less people got sick. That's why we are where we are today. So, Brad, this is just BS. (laughs) What we have now today, absolutely. Bang on. But that's after three years of a global pandemic. We've got to the point we have where it's now becoming an endemic. Three years later, after deaths, about a half a dozen variants and vaccine, that's how we have built up the natural immunity. But you go ahead. You lick the doorknobs and the brass rails all you want. (laughs) I'll take the vaccine. And thank good 90% of us did. Uh, All right, let's move on and uh, leave yesterday's news behind us, please. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Here's more yesterday's news. Remember those blue license plates and uh, how uh, the new license plate were to come out? And then once they were actually developed, they realized that you couldn't see the dang things. You know, like who is doing R&D on the license plates? I'm not sure. Um, you know, whoever's, I think it was 3M that was contracted out to do this. How this got through, how it got passed through the people at the license department is beyond me. Um, but we certainly know the embarrassment that followed this and the plates were ended up being re- called and then there was a uh, a campaign i guess to uh, scrap the uh, defective plates and replace them let's get an update on all of that let's bring in brian j patterson a president of the ontario safety league and is with us now brian thank you for the time i hope you're well oh all's well and uh, i've been a lead fan for 50 years so when they win this year i'm going to tell everybody i was right all along there you go. Out of boy, out of boy. All right. So, um, first of all, how did we, before we get an update on where we are with these plates, how did we get, because many governments will say, Hey, I want to add this to a license plate. It goes to the license plate department people, whoever that is. And then they obviously contract this work out to other people. And then you, you know, it gets produced, it gets distributed and you know, off we go. How did, 
we get to a point, and it's not like not license plates are new. We know what they have to do and that they have to reflect light in a certain amount. How did it ever get to the point where this got approved out of the R&D stage um, to even be manufactured and put on cars? The, uh, the, uh, it, the, the, the short answer is, uh, you know, 3M sold the government a bill of goods. Yeah. They said, oh, it's already been tested in other jurisdictions. It's not a problem. It'll work out great. And uh, it was, uh, they'd been trying to flog that to the government for about five or six years. And then uh, it looked like an on-the-shelf win for the Conservatives, right? Yeah, let's, uh, let's uh, gain the benefits of these new license plates, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, within, as you say, within two weeks, uh, it, was, it, it had all blown up. They weren't, they weren't tested on the readers at the border. They weren't tested on the readers in uh, police cruisers. I don't even know if they work in the new readers that are in OPP cruisers now. Mm-hmm. So at, the, uh, at the end of the day, uh, I think uh, there was a great deal of trust uh, put into the manufacturer. I mean, uh, according to the premier, they, uh, they, they are uh, they are no charge, and they're going to pay for fixing it. Then COVID came along, so uh, I kind of I, I kind of think they had bigger priorities. But I certainly yeah. uh, I certainly believe they should be uh, uh, withdrawn by the end of this year and uh, and simply uh, notifying people that their plate uh, has to be changed. And uh, after uh, January 1, if you're utilizing those plates, they'll, uh, uh, you'll uh, 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 be subject to uh, uh, some sort of uh, uh, immediate need to get the, uh, the plate changed or even a fine. I think some people are just uh, hanging on to them because they think it's like the Rio Grande. When I'm driving around and nobody can see me, I'm uh, <laughs> uh, I can I can do bad things. So uh, so basically, the Ontario government said that's it. We're not even bothered chasing these anymore. How many are out there? Uh, I think they said there's about 150, and and they're going to be recalled. I mean, that's been the uh, and that's actually the ministry's uh, position, but they just have not uh, undertaken that process. Uh, and I guess you know I. Uh, I think there was a time people wouldn't have gone into government offices if that's all they're going to do. But uh, they can have them; uh, they can surrender them at any uh, uh, Service Ontario location, uh, and uh, they can mail them in, and the replacements can be mailed out. So there is the possibility of doing it and doing it quickly. But we've—I uh, uh, guess we've never—we've never had the problem that 3M created. So we really don't have an infrastructure. To, uh, to pull those plates in, but we can get it done by the end of the year. Uh, so are they considered illegal? Uh, they're, uh, they're legal until they're withdrawn. Right. So uh, right. The, the announcement and the details of, uh, you know, if you continue to drive with them after they've been withdrawn, uh, is that a violation of the Highway Traffic Act? Uh, I'm not sure there's one in there, although, uh, you know, the, the ones that are in there are more for uh, people who fake. Uh, a license plate, etc. But uh, yeah, I'd be uh, I'd be very very cautious of uh, any of the uh, the reporting that uh, that came out through um, uh, 3M because it's just not it's just it it, it it left a lot of people with uh, egg on their face. Hmm. 
Brian Patterson with us, president of the Ontario Safety League. Remember those blue license plates? Uh, yeah, they'll come back to haunt you. Uh, Brian, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Have a great day. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. A Canadian actor, a legend, and um, trailblazer in the Canadian entertainment industry, Gordon Pinsett, has passed away. Age of 92. 92 years old. And uh, back when entertainment was a lot different in this country than it is now. Let's bring in Bill Brio, critic, author, and commentator with us now. Bill, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Doing fine, Scott. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Different world when Gordon Pinsett uh, made his debut, uh, Two Channel Canada and such. What was it like back then? Yeah, you know, he was early on in the uh, spectrum of uh, Canadian television back in the late 50s. When a lot of great actors were, you know, you'd had Christopher Plummer and they were working for directors like mm. Norman Jewison and a lot of big names. But uh, he certainly made his mark early. One of the first shows I remember seeing as a youngster was him playing a Mountie in the Forest Rangers. Oh, wow. <laughs> Wow. So, uh, and, and, and back in the day, you do, do a lot of different things for the corp or, or for anyone. I mean, if you were on once, you were on several times. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and he was, that's the thing about Gordon Pinsett. He worked and worked and worked and uh, he did movies, feature films, right up till the last years of his life. Some of his best work, really. Uh, and he even did commercials. Do you remember there was, he was the voice of a goat in an ad. I don't even remember what they were promoting, but it, you just saw a little goat on the screen. But it was Gordon Pinsett's voice. It was very funny. Babar? I don't think, well, he did Babar, he did animated he yeah, did voiceover yeah. and things like that, but this was just an, an ad, um, yeah. you know, but he, he did uh, the, the Sweet Hereafter and uh, so many g great movies late in life uh, that he never really stopped working. It's interesting, and we're hearing so much in the tributes and people talking about uh, him. Uh, Rex Murphy uh, had a piece in the in the uh, National Post uh, saying, like everybody liked this guy in, in a Newfoundlander, so obviously incredibly friendly uh, off off the uh, the start, but just brought everybody into his world. Yeah, I was had the good fortune to meet him on several occasions. I was out in St. John's. He was a guest star on Republic of Doyle with Alan Hocko. And uh, Hocko said literally, like, you know, this guy, Gordon Pinsett, was like the Pope. If you were from Newfoundland, um, he, he was the actor's actor. And even when Hocko started on stage, he happened to be in a, in a role that Pinsent saw. And Pinsent, uh, you know, was one of the first to line up and contribute when Hocko started a theater company. And many, many other actors will tell you the same thing, just how generous he was with uh, in, in any way he could help. Greatest accomplishments? Um, wow, it's hard to narrow it down. You know, if you were, depending how old you were, like he was a pioneer in many ways back when he did Quentin Durgan's MP, played a member of parliament in the 60s. Uh, he played, uh, you know, bank robbers. He played uh, a lot of different roles. Um, so it's, it's hard to answer that question directly. You know, he played a Mountie three or four times. Hmm. He was on Due South. And yeah. he told me that uh, that's the best. An actor's trick was to play a Mountie because you're wearing a red tunic. So everybody looks at you. 
<laughs> oh man, I think Ferrari said the same thing about the color of their cars. Exactly. Yes, um, <laughs> that's a great point. Uh, yeah. Canadian production back then to what it is now, to his world, to where he, where he started and, and how he he saw it end. Well, you know, the the Forest Rangers ran in the early 60s, and it was the first Canadian series shot in color. It was made in Kleinberg, Ontario, at a ranch, and uh, it was about a bunch of kids. Pinsett played a Mountie, but it was shot on 16-millimeter color film, and they had to wear so much makeup, they didn't know how it would register on little TV screens back then. Right. So Pinsett said it was like they put uh, peanut butter on your face. Like the, the makeup was so heavy. And that was part of the early days of TV just to see how it would look. And if you see the forest rangers now in color, it's hard to find. The, the coloring is off on their skin tones. It does look like peanut butter. It's weird. And a lot of flies around, apparently, too, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so how would other Canadian actors look at him compared to how things have changed? I remember you saying one time when we had talked to you about, I think it was Canadian content, and you said, now productions, there's no such thing as Canadian content now because this may be done in Canada, this may be done in Europe, this may be done in the U.S., this is blah, 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 and they truly are uh, international uh, productions and such. How do actors of today look back at him? Well, just a staggeringly broad career. You know, he did, like every Canadian, go to the States. He was on Canon. He was on, uh, you know, like uh, Hogan's Heroes. He made uh, 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 several American shows uh, that ran in the 70s, early 70s. But he came back. He did The Rowdy Man. He did this Canadian stories. And and that's what he'll be remembered for. And he, he wrote those movies as well, some of them. Uh, so just tremendous versatility. And uh, somebody, he told me that for him, acting every project, even into his 80s, it was like the first day of school. He never assumed he knew anything anybody else did, and uh, he always brought that edge to his work. Certainly back in this day, uh, a lot of Canadian artists, whether music, acting, what have you, um, had to go to the United States in order to get their career to take off. What about his time in the U.S.? You referred to him coming back. Yeah, I mean, you know, he it did help his career, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, you know, The Thomas Crown Affair was a movie Norman Jewison made. If you watch that, there's Gordon Pinsent in a scene or two with Faye Dunaway. And, uh, you know, he, he made a couple other films like that. Colossus, a science fiction film in the early 70s. Uh, didn't hurt him, you know, but he I think he just preferred to be working in Canada and known from coast to coast as a Canadian actor in Canadian productions. It wasn't that he was in the Thomas Crown Affair. People recognized him here. You know, they'd seen him in so many things over the years. And uh, that is really an accomplishment in Canada. Uh, how much of this has to do with the fact he's a Newfoundlander? Oh, an awful lot. You know, like he, um, I guess, brings that East Coast sensibility. Mm. Uh, he just seemed like, uh, you know, in roles like the Rowdy Man, he's playing uh, a, a guy from The Rock. And, uh, you know, not the, not the most uh, welcome character in many respects, but just a, a fellow well met, you know, and, and he just seemed like that kind of a guy that you could talk to. Uh, and that was the, res you know, response of anybody I've talked to. And if you look at the tributes today and uh, on the weekend from people like Alan Hocko and Ron James and Mark Critch, uh, fellow actors who hail from the same province, 
he was beloved and uh, by all of them. And what about Americans? Uh, what about American actors who h- held him in high regard? It's funny, you know, uh, there's a story about him and Rod Steiger going out to a bar. They're working on a movie in B.C. And, um, you know, Steiger didn't want to go out uh, for a drink. And, and Pins said, oh, you got to, you got to. So they, they went out and had a drink. Because Steiger's like, oh, people bother me for my autograph. So they get to the <laughs> restaurant and the waitress who makes a big, big fuss and walks right by Steiger and goes, Gordon Pinsent. You know? <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think he just took those things in stride. People love to see him. And uh, that's pretty cool for an actor. Bill Brio, critic, author and commentator, Canadian actor Gordon Pinsent has uh, passed away at age of 92. Bill, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. All right. Um, uh, look outside. <laughs> It's starting again, but apparently not as bad as the one we just got. Uh, yes, we've got some uh, interesting weather coming in over the next little while. Let's bring in Ross Hall, global news meteorologist. He is with us now. Ross, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hi there, Scott. Yes, I am doing well. And, uh, you know, I know most people don't enjoy these types of weather conditions, but this is where, you know, meteorologists, winter weather, we thrive, right? So, uh, yeah, it, <laughs> yeah meteorologists to dissect. Meteorologists and people that have snowblowers are the ones that love this That's time right. of the year. I mean, they just can't yes. wait. Or skis, perhaps. I mean, I'm sure skiing has a yeah. lot to do with it, too. All right. We're starting to see the action pick up here. What, what can we expect in the next little while? Okay. Well, you mentioned that uh, we're not expecting as much moisture with this system, but still, uh, it's the timing once again and the intensity. So uh, we're already starting to see that uh, heavy precipitation track into the area. And that's what we're going to see likely for the next, uh, well, three, four, five hours, likely into the early morning hours on Tuesday. And you can expect over the next few hours, heavy wet snow blowing around, breezy northeasterly winds, then a transition to some ice pellets and possibly some freezing rain mixed in. Uh, so making for a, a messy, wintry mix uh, towards the later evening hours into the early morning hours on Tuesday. So, uh, you know, it's one of those situations where try to shovel as much as you can because then that sort of messy cement uh, takes over. However, temperatures oh, will man. start to rise as we head into the early morning hours on, uh, on, on Tuesday. So that's one piece of good news. Well, there, here we go again. This seems to be the news of, of this season, Ross, where, you know, it starts off as a winter storm, then it turns into something else and sometimes goes back to winter storm again. So you're expecting snow, but then this to, to mild up again and then obviously more ice and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, and it's very, uh, it's, it's going to be very specific as to where you are. Around Hamilton, uh, south towards Niagara, I, I don't expect as much freezing rain with this system, but if you do plan on traveling, uh, west along the 403, the 401, Woodstock, Brantford, uh, London, those areas have a better chance of seeing some ice accretion. So that could be two to five millimeters, not ice storm proportions, but enough to make things slippery on untreated roads and walkways. And in terms of the freezing rain potential around Hamilton and the, and, you know, the, the, the great Hamilton area, it's it's going to depend on those temperatures, obviously. obviously some areas, uh, lower terrain, could get into even some rain into the early morning hours. So it's going to be messy out there. If you don't have to be on the roads, especially between now and, say, midnight or 1, 2 a.m., uh, try not to do it. I know a lot of people don't have that choice, uh, but the morning commute will be uh, will be a lot easier. Of course, it's going to be that cleanup, though, that messy mix by uh, by the morning hours. 
So uh, starting as snow and then turning to whatever rain, uh, wet snow, uh, wet uh, precipitation, how much snow do we get before it turns to rain? Do we know? Or is that, again, an elevation location thing? Uh, Well, I I think there's a good chance because we're looking at snowfall rates possibly reaching two, four centimeters an hour. So if we continue in this heavy snow, and I'm just looking at the radar right now, and it is, uh, I don't know what you're seeing outside your window, but I've just looked at some of the MTO cameras as well. And it looks like it's snow, right? So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we we are dealing with that likely for the next few hours. So that could accumulate to two, four, possibly five centimeters. But then after that, uh, I don't expect the ice pellets and the freezing rain and obviously the rain to accumulate to too much. Uh, but again, it's going to be messy out there. So uh, you know, it, it's that it's that heavy snow as well mixed with ice pellets. It's not easy to shovel. I'm sure, many you know we talk about a snowblower. Make friends with someone who does because uh, mm. it it can be difficult, especially when the plows move move that stuff and then you've got to clear that at the end of your driveway. I'm speaking from experience. Uh, yeah, it can be a little difficult out there. All right. So the worst between now, uh, roughly the dinner hour and midnight tonight, uh, the, the, by the tomorrow morning commute, will this be largely a rain event or will it still be snow in some areas? Yeah, temperatures are going to be marginal. So we're looking at around one degree. So some areas, higher terrain could still be in a bit of wet snow, but I also expect the intensity of the precipitation to ease by by the morning commute. So it'll be more of a cleanup story, still windy and breezy out there. That's the other aspect, obviously, we've been talking about. And Scott, we haven't even gotten to the next system that uh, I was just about to worry about. about, uh, No, wait, I was I was about to ask you, Ross. (laughs) So what comes after this? Well, I'm keeping an eye on a system that uh, could track in on Friday, it looks like, Friday afternoon, Friday evening. And this one could be all snow. And again, it's still early, uh, but this could be significant snowfall. So 15, 20 plus centimeters for some areas. So uh, it looks like we're going to have uh, a busy end and start to March, busy end of February and start to March when it comes to active winter weather. All right, Ross Hall with us, Global News Meteorologist. Make sure you're watching Global Tonight for more on all of this. Ross, thanks for the time. Good luck. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. We remember during uh, the beginning of the global pandemic, our prime minister saying, by the way, we don't manufacture vaccines uh, and we'll have to stand in line. And I think a lot of Canadians, whoa, whoa, what, what, what? And uh, then, long story short, we were four to six months behind vaccinating uh, our population compared to the, the Europe's and in, in North America and uh, United States and such and what have you. Uh, after waiting for them to get vaccinated before, of course, excess being shipped on to us. Then we remember uh, the UK and Oxford. Uh, they came out uh, with the AZ, the AstraZeneca, and a lot of this vaccine did vaccinate a great portion of Europe during the early stages of this vaccine. It got here first, but then as soon as uh, Pfizer and Moderna arrived, we started getting conflicting reports between uh, NASI on advice advising us about immunization and Health Canada, who, of course, approves all of this, saying about which one was better. Then people started playing favorites, and AstraZeneca literally was out of the picture. They were, you know, Pfizer and Moderna is what everybody wanted, and I'm not sure what happened to all the AstraZeneca we bought. Now... They are setting up shop here. What does this mean? Let's bring in Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He's with us now. Ian, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, Thanks very much, Scott. Doing very well. My, how things have changed, Ian. You're right. And I I think this is a very good news story on several levels. Yeah. Um, First and foremost, 
something that's uh, annoyed me and made me very upset for the last, I don't know, five or ten years, um, is the what I have called, and I think very accurately, the demonization of the pharmaceutical industry. By the yeah. way, I do not have any shares whatsoever in pharmaceutical, nor do I consult these people. But I am a big-time customer because I have arthritis. And <laughs> largest single-selling set of drugs in North America is, guess what? Arthritis drugs. What a surprise. And and so where I'm going with this is the pharmaceutical industry, notwithstanding those people out there who misguidedly attack pharmaceuticals, a pharmaceutical industry, um, are literally saving our lives. Not just with arthritis drugs, cancer drugs, heart, stroke, you know, beta blockers, statins, you name it. They're saving lives big time, big time. That's one answer. The second one is, is that this industry, these are what you call good jobs in the pharmaceutical industry, whether it's in the clinical testing, such as this announcement today, or in the people in the laboratories who are looking up the new combinations and discoveries of drugs. These are really well-paid people. They're, these are very educated people, advanced degrees in biology and chemistry and biochemistry and all the related life science degrees. And, and they make very good salaries and they pay lots of taxes. So this is an industry that we should be celebrating, not trashing, celebrating. And third point, very quickly, is we've, uh, in the last 10 or 15 years, been very successful as Canadians at running this industry out of town. Yeah. Uh, because we demonized them, we regulated the prices so low, they said, hey, we're not staying here. This is a hostile place to do business. Now, they didn't say it that bluntly. I'm saying it bluntly because I'm tenured and I can speak truth to power. And so I hope that this decision today, this announcement today, represents a change in the outlook and the mentality of our decision makers in government um, who have sold us this snake oil over the last 10, 15, 20 years. Pharmaceutical companies are bad, they're greedy, they're rapacious, they're harmful, and they're not. As I keep saying, they save lives. I know that. I have friends who have been saved by drugs that they have prescription drugs. I know I couldn't function without my arthritis drugs. That's why I get so upset at these politicians that uh, go after the, uh, and, and the way I like to put it, not one single politician of, of one political party has ever come up with one new drug. You say, well, of course not. Well, then they should set a step aside. They're not part of the solution, and they should step aside. We need more pharmaceutical companies. It we seemed need for the more life-saving drugs. It seemed for the longest good. time, Ian, we were more interested, as you were saying, in condemning them and pushing for uh, generic drugs that were usually yeah. rip-offs of them or or yeah. somehow violated some patent somewhere down the line. Yeah. We were more interested in those companies than we were in the ones that were actually doing the R and D. Yes. And, and a very interesting statistic for your listeners. Do you know where they, the, the countries that uh, uh, have the strongest record of very successful companies and they make lots and lots of money and they hire lots and lots of people? The Germans, the Americans, the Swiss, the French. Like, what do they know that we don't know? Well, they're, I guess they know a lot more than we do. They are the center of some of the largest and of the center of the largest and most successful yeah. pharmaceutical companies in the world uh, in these countries. These are very high-income countries, very successful countries. And these are very successful industries, industries of tomorrow, the good jobs of tomorrow. This is the industry we want to encourage 
not rip off and demonize. And so I'm hoping that this announcement, as I said, is a harbinger or, or a taste of, of more uh, to come, because these are the kinds of jobs we want. And I don't begrudge them going to southern Ontario. It makes perfect sense because of the, the, the multiple universities in southern Ontario, not just in Toronto proper, Waterloo, you know, and, and that whole area. And they've got a lot of uh, Hamilton and McMaster. So there's some real strong core competencies down there in life sciences. And as I said, if we can start to set up a critical mass of, of, uh, of research companies in pharma, um, this, this is just win-win-win for Canadians uh, and for the jobs it will bring and the research and development monies it will bring. And, of course, they're investing huge amounts of money to do what? Develop new drugs that save more lives. That's a good thing. And- and obviously, bringing that investment here to Canada, uh, do you think there's more of this to come? We remember there was a place opened up during the height of the pandemic in Montreal or Quebec, and now that's gone under. Yes, exactly, exactly. Uh, I think so. I, we've got the opportunity. Um, Canada has the opportunity because, well, I mean, we are the 10th largest economy on planet Earth. I mean, we are fifth or sixth if you measure it by average income per person. That's how wealthy we are. We are one of the most educated countries in the world, according to the OECD. We have, we're a very safe country, uh, you know, very prosperous country. Um, and, and so my point is, there's huge advantages for a company to come here, so long as government doesn't mess it up by setting taxes that are too high, uh, or setting up an environment that is hostile to this industry in terms of their intellectual property, which is protected by patents normally. So if we can come up with a regime that supports them, as the Swiss do, the Germans do, the French do, and the Americans do, they've figured it out, then if we can do that, we can get uh, more of this investment. And and I want to remind everybody again, you know, I still hear professors talking about that terrible military-industrial complex. The military-industrial complex is really tiny. The largest, if I can call it, industrial complex today, anywhere in the Western world, is healthcare, and, mm. and more precisely, the life science sector. It is mega gigantic and only get, getting bigger because as we become more affluent, we become ever more concerned about our health and our well-being, and we're willing to spend more and more money on it. That's why this very much is the industry of, of, of going forward of the future, yeah. and it's just going to bring more benefits uh, to our country. Dr. Ian Lee with us, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, the Premier and the Prime Minister announcing AstraZeneca expanding its R&D operations in the Mississauga area. Good news for all. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, we've talked a lot about uh, the uh, teacher at Oakville Trafalgar High School in Halton, uh, where many have complained there's been, this has got worldwide attention, it's gone all over the world, Uh, a a teacher that is uh, dressing in uh, prosthetic, 
athletic breasts, which are overly large, tight skirt, this sort of thing. The kids have a dress code, uh, but apparently the teachers uh, do not. Um, uh, many people have been asking the board to make a call on this, including our education minister, uh, and it's gone from there uh, to various other organizations saying the board's got to make the call here. They've got all the tools to do so. Uh, recently, the Halton's uh, board sent home a survey to parents asking them what they thought a dress code should be all about. Uh, where we are, are we solving the problem or just avoiding a decision? Let's bring in Rishu Bandu, Bandu Law Professional Corporation, and is with us now. Rishi, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hope you're doing well as, uh, as well. Uh, thanks for having me. So where are we now with all of this, Rishi? I mean, uh, this, uh, uh, I guess, survey has been sent home by the parents. It it appears that we're looking for a way to get out of this rather than a solution. Is is that accurate? Yeah, I I wouldn't uh, disagree with that. uh, I'm I'm puzzled by the professionalism policy because what what we had asked them to do is is simply confirm the values and beliefs in the student dress code. And and if they weren't going to do that, then to tell us what they expected of teachers. And what's puzzling about this professionalism policy is that it seems to be unnecessary because it already reflects the expectations that it has of of, of teachers already. So... I'm not sure why they're going down this process, including, you know, sending out surveys to parents about about their opinion on this. It just it just seems to me to be a waste of time. So what will happen when the survey is returned? How does that change things for them? I'm not entirely sure. The um, when you look at the Education Act, it, it clearly states that when the board implements or revises a policy that applies to all persons at a school, it has to solicit the input of school councils. Now, school councils are, are basically the group of parents that, that have the authority to advise the school and the board. So really what the board should be doing in this policy is getting the views of school council on what they think should be in this policy. What they've done is something very different. They've drafted a policy and then sent out a survey to every single stakeholder in its jurisdiction, asking it a number of, of, of questions about that. And so, in my view, it doesn't really comply with the Education Act and, and really is, is seems to be a meaningless exercise. You wonder if it was this difficult to uh, develop a dress code for the students. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. And, you know, the... When you look at that student that student dress code, it's not much of a code to 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 be honest. It it gives students a great deal of of flexibility in how they want to want to dress, and and frankly, the purpose of it appears to be to comply with the uh, Ontario Human Rights Code. Um, it it I, I I still struggle with why they simply just couldn't have said that that yeah we we expect teachers to abide by that at a minimum. Does the Human Rights Code require the board to be functioning the way that it is? I mean, it seems that they keep falling back to human rights and such. Is this what, are they doing something uh, beyond the code by asking this teacher to have appropriate dress? Well, I think, I think the question, Scott, is, is whether or not the way in which the teacher is dressed uh, triggers uh, obligations under the Human Rights Code, and and so what what the board mm-hmm. appears to be saying or appears to have said is that this teacher is protected under this idea of gender expression, 
Um, and, and certainly that that is an important ground of discrimination in our code, and it applies to transgender persons. But in my mind, it's not at all clear that this person is protected by the code, especially after the most recent comments that this teacher has made to the New York Post saying that the breasts incredulously are 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 real and that and that she's a woman. So it's not at all clear that this is gender expression. And, uh, you know, even if the teacher is is transgendered, uh, there's still a very good argument that that these prosthetic breasts that that she's wearing are simply not appropriate. They're they're hypersexualized. You find them at fetish shops. And they have no place in a, in a school. She can wear them somewhere else, like a bar or a club or anywhere else that, um, you know, it doesn't involve children and learning. Uh, every other employee or student uh, would have to abide by some sort of code. Are you saying because this person is transgender, they don't have to? No, 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 not at all. They, they, they still have to comply. There, there's, there's no question. So, so then, why, even, why is this a problem, Rishu? Why is this, uh, why is this an issue then? Because again, whatever the person is going through, and that's their personal business. How does the fact that they're dressing this way? How is that defended? How is that acceptable? Because I think that the board has taken a very narrow view of this situation. They, they're they looking at this, they're seeing a t- teacher who's dressed up like a woman, and they're simply accepting that and not looking any further at it. Yeah. Right. But, but, but what the parents are seeing is something that's obscene and pornographic. Uh, and, but the, but, you know, the board isn't doing that. And, and like, like you've heard many times in the media, they're not putting the students' interests first, and they're ignoring the context of, of this situation. This is not a bar. It's not a club. It's a school, and teachers need to be dressed appropriately. There's nothing to do Are with we mis- transgender status. Are we missing the point here? Is the board seeing something we're not seeing here? What uh, are, are, are we uneducated for not seeing it through their lens? Oh, I don't think so. I... I, I it's hard to know what what they're seeing or what they're justifying because they don't they don't explain themselves and they don't engage in dialogue or, or communicate uh, uh, about this. Um, so we can only speculate. And from what I can see as a board that that made a bad decision from the outset and just yeah. continue to double down on it and not take any responsibility or accountability for it. So, Reshi, where do you see this going? I mean, what happens now? Because this just, see, again, I'm not sure, and you're not, I don't think, what the objective of this survey is, uh, other than covering the rear end more. Um, where do you see this going? What, what's next? Well, you know, it, it's always been about the teacher and, and the teacher's inappropriate dress. And, and so, from my perspective, the real story here, the real issue that needs to be addressed is is the teacher's comments that, number one, she's not a transgendered person, and that these breasts are real. And and mm. that, you know, as a post put it, is a spectacular claim. It just doesn't appear to be true. So from my perspective, I think that's what the board needs to follow up on. Um, if If, you know, I'm the employer in this case, I'd be saying to this teacher, okay, it's time for you to go on paid leave. Let's have a third-party investigator come in and look at this and, and get to the bottom of this because, you know, if, if you're not telling the truth about this, and it, it it's hard to imagine how she is telling the truth, uh, then, you know, 
why is she lying? What what is she covering up? And 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 mm. you know why is she dressing like this at school, uh, but but not otherwise. Rashid Bandu with us, Bandu Law Professional Corporation, representing a group of parents who are upset with the dress of an OT teacher and uh, the Halton Board, just uh, now doing a survey to see what parents think of all of this, I guess, as they try to establish some sort of code. Uh, Rishi, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. We'll chat again. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate it. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. You might remember at a time. All right, kids, let me take you back to a time when uh, whenever there was an increase in what we used to call the sin taxes. So those were cigarettes, tobacco, um, and and alcohol, beer, wine, spirits, that sort of thing. It was an election issue. And many elections were won and lost over how much they were raising the, quote, sin taxes. And then the federal government put in uh, a an accelerator tax on alcohol, so it's not even voted on every year. It just goes up by the rate of inflation. Now, you haven't noticed it because the inflation rate, right up until very recently, has been hovering around 1%, so you don't even notice. Now, as of April 1st, get ready, your booze is about to go up about 6% because of this alcohol accelerator tax, which happens every year, no vote, no anything, just more money for government coffers. Let's bring in Tracy McGregor, Vice President, Ontario, for Restaurants Canada, and with us now. Tracy, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am, and thank you for the opportunity. So how is this going to impact the restaurant industry? Well, it's going to impact them with another cost at a time that they're vulnerable and we're seeing costs go up everywhere. Uh, we figure it's about a $750 million hit to the food service industry. Uh, that would mean every um, the average casual dining restaurant would have to sell about thirty to thirty six thousand a year in sales to cover that tax increase. We used to this used to be a big deal way back when. Uh, I'm an old guy, uh, and when they <laughs> raised this, people would scream and yell. Uh, now this just happens automatically. Are your customers even aware of this stuff? Do you think? Well, I think for the most part, when it's going up at a, at a gradual pace at 2%, that it does, it does tend to get absorbed over a number of areas. But when it's 6.3% at a time when every cost is rising, it's a little impossible to bury something like that. And, and beyond that, it's, it's hard for anyone to absorb. I mean, we're seeing cost of living go up. Uh, the average Canadian's having troubles with that too. So passing it on to patrons isn't an option and absorbing, absorbing it isn't an option for the restaurants either. And this isn't really like costs are going up for the government in any way, because these industries are all self-sustaining and then some. This is just a cash grab, is it not? It's not like the government needs the money to pay for alcohol-related stuff. It's not for alcohol-related, but certainly our taxes go to all the infrastructure and, and things yeah. here in Canada that we like. It's just It's just this particular tax at this time and escalated to this level is very difficult to to absorb is anybody listening do you think there'll be backlash come april 1 uh I, we're seeing some backlash i mean it's interesting bob and doug mckenzie came out of uh retirement to uh, have a say on it uh with tell me about the, i have not i have to go look this up i have not seen this ad yet tell me about this ad in this campaign Oh, there's three actually different ads, and, and it's Bob and Doug McKenzie talking about the tax. Um, and they bring back their fun song again and, yeah. you know, call. 
uh, talk about being hosed. So it's it's been a lot of fun, tongue-in-cheek kind of uh, advertisements that Beer Canada um, ran over the over the course of this time to to kind of raise awareness around it. Is anybody at the federal government listening? Is this falling on deaf ears? Um, I mean, there's been several conversations about it. We don't know. I mean, April 1st is looming. Um, you know, Beer Canada has certainly been vocal about it, as has the Canadian Chamber and ourselves. Um, you know, out-of-home beer consumption is still down 25% from pre-pandemic sales, um, largely from draft beer and restaurants, and, and the restaurants themselves are down in sales with traffic as well. So it's just one of those things that it it just can't be absorbed, not at the restaurant's level. Another cost that you uh, have to absorb while you're trying to make a comeback, really? Yes. I mean, this particular sector has been hit. I mean, they had the most closures. Ontario's further behind the rest of Canada in terms of the recovery. And, and I mean, we know insurance is going up, rents are going up for them. Anybody who's been to the grocery stores knows that food input costs are are going through the roof. So it's it's just one more thing one more piece that that keeps adding and you know their SIBA loans are also due at the end of this year so it's it's a daunting mm. time to be in the restaurant industry tracy mcgregor with us vice president ontario restaurants canada talking about a new accelerator tax which will kick in on april 1st jacking up the price of alcohol 6.3 percent uh and also obviously how that affects the hospitality industry tracy thanks for the time and insight much appreciated be well thank you we have often have uh, Sam Cooper on the show, Global News investigative reporter. He has done some incredible work over the years on uh, Chinese Communist Party's infiltration of systems in Canada. And his latest, which I highly recommend you read on the Global News website, it's on our website, you can find it there, uh, which is uh, entitled Liberals Ignored CSIS Warning on 2019 Candidate Accused in Chinese Interference Probe, uh, say sources. I'm just going to read you the first couple of lines here. Three weeks before Canada's 2019 federal election national security officials allegedly gave an urgent classified briefing to senior aides from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's office warning them that one of their candidates was part of a Chinese foreign interference network. According to sources, the candidate in question was Han Don, then a former Ontario MPP who uh, whom Canadian Security Intelligence Service had started tracking in June of that year. National security uh, officials also allege that Don, now a sitting MP re-elected in 2021 is one of at least 11 11 Toronto-area riding candidates allegedly supported by Beijing in the 2019 contest. Sources say the service also believes that Don is a winning affiliate in uh, in China's election interference networks. To talk more about all of this, Sam Cooper with us, Global News National Investigative Journalist in here now. Sam, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Uh, This is getting a lot of Attraction. A lot of people talking about this. Uh, the first thing I want to ask you, Sam, is we just watched a little earlier a news conference with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Premier Doug Ford talking about an AstraZeneca operation in Mississauga here. And and he was asked directly about exactly what you're talking about and this candidate. And he painted a tone of there's 1.7 million Chinese Canadians and, and then played the racism card, said, you know, that we shouldn't be judging um, this man. I'm not going to put words in his mouth. He played the racism card as opposed to, my goodness, some red flags went up from CSIS about a candidate. Shouldn't we be talking about this? What is your take on the prime minister's reaction to what you're reporting? 
Well, uh, to the first point, uh, certainly this is not about race in, 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 in any sense. Uh, to track back to my first uh, exclusive story in November, we reported about a, a broad and vast interference campaign from the Chinese Communist Party, which is targeting uh, uh, most critically Chinese Canadian communities and uh, 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 with with the effect of uh, operations that would target critics of the regime. And it is uh, certainly not only Chinese Canadian candidates uh, from my sourcing that are targeted in these operations. There are officials at all levels of government. We have reported in in all governments in, in Canada, and it, it doesn't matter what race they are. Foreign interference is a major issue in Canada. I don't think anyone will dispute that. Another key fact is uh, the People's Republic of China is by far all of the expert and all of the document sourcing I've reported on by far the greatest threat in this interference uh, uh, threat landscape. Russia and uh, other countries such as Iran are also key threats. But above all, China is targeting Canada's democracy. Uh, this is widely reported in documentation that uh, we know that the Prime Minister has reviewed. Uh, we've confirmed that. So to, to his point, uh, I didn't hear any denials that uh, Liberal Party senior staff were briefed about these concerns. I, I, we need to make it clear. Uh, Mr. Don, Han Don, uh, the one of, uh, you know, the, the, the focus of this story, uh, has strongly denied the allegations. He did so again today, but, uh, the sourcing, uh, uh, uh remains that, uh, CSIS had serious concerns about Mr. Don and his, uh, uh, and that if he ran as a candidate, this is a threatening to Canada's democratic institutions. And we didn't hear uh, Prime Minister Trudeau uh, answer whether he or his senior staff before or after the 2019 election uh, received these warnings. We did hear him say that uh, he, he is behind uh, hand on. Um, he even went on, the Prime Minister went on to, um, um, I don't want to say throw CSIS on the bus, but basically said CSIS doesn't determine who we run as candidates, which, again, I don't think that's what they were doing. What they were doing was trying to, to provide information for him. Um, that being said, uh, there is chatter of an inquiry. Do you think this will happen? It looks like the Prime Minister uh, isn't in a hurry to call one. Well, first, I would agree fully with your assessment. Uh, the Prime Minister said it's not up to unelected security officials to dictate to political parties who can or cannot run. Uh, that is absolutely correct. CSIS is not mandated to do that. What we reported based on sources with awareness is that a strong warning was provided to the Prime Minister's uh, political party two days before nominations closed and recommendations were made and not heeded. Uh, as to a political, uh, that is a public inquiry into these matters. Uh, you're right. We're hearing from a growing list of national security experts that such an inquiry, uh, we heard from Dick Fadden, the former CSIS director. Mm -hmm. There could be no reason why such an inquiry should happen now. It's the, people say it's the only way to avoid the partisanship and get to the facts of the matter. Canadians need to, need to understand, uh, what's behind these allegations. Uh, and uh, political parties as well. Uh, as you know, uh, NDP's leader Jagmeet Singh came out today saying they that party believes there needs to be an independent inquiry. 
the the reporting we're hearing says that the Chinese Communist Party was interested in a liberal minority government. That's what they thought would be most friendly to them and adjusted their uh, manipulation in a way to achieve that. Is one of the reasons the prime minister is not jumping on this is because it benefited him. They were supporting each other. I mean, they may have, they, we certainly have reporting, and you've said that they've, they established uh, relations with some conservative contacts, but then again, the outcome was to have a liberal minority government, not a conservative. Yes, well, the, the, I can comment on the intelligence. I've seen directly with my eyes, that's where I'm most confident. I have seen the documentation that uh, CSIS has intelligence that Chinese officials in Canada believe that uh, 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 Immigrant communities, unfortunately, under uh, according to the Chinese Communist Party or officials, can be easily manipulated to uh, to to support People's Republic stances, and that they believe that uh, communities showed their strength for China in the 2021 election. Furthermore, that the message to those communities in the diaspora is that the Liberal Party of Canada is the only one that China can support. So uh, others have reported on, on similar intelligence. And look, I can confirm I've seen relevant documentation. Of course, it's extremely concerning. And my sources would say a problem facing the Liberal Party is if they are not responding to this intelligence, could it be that uh, they in some way could be benefiting? That's a natural yeah. question. I would add that our story, our sourcing is that... Uh, Another of the suspects, which was uh, named in this alleged brief, is a key fundraiser for the Liberal Party of Canada. And this could raise questions, according to my political and intelligence sources. Could the party not be serious about it because of the funds uh, uh, this suspect was bringing in? Yeah. What is next, you think, Sam? Where does this go? There's, uh, there, there are other alleged actors in these networks. Uh, it's, uh, uh, you know, reporting these stories uh, is extremely uh, sensitive, challenging, vetting the facts, and we take that very seriously. Uh, all the information I have from Canadian intelligence sources is uh, they know it's not uh, the usual course of action to uh, let reporters see sensitive intelligence but they believe Canada's democracy, that is future elections, are under a growing threat. And that's why myself and, and now other uh, senior reporters uh, in Canada, after my reports, have also got access mm. to sensitive documents. Yeah, everybody certainly jumped on board the wave you started, Sam. Sam Cooper, Global News National Investigative Journalist. You can see more on this uh, on the global website. Sam, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. The kids are about to hate the parents. Get ready. We talked about this before. I don't even want to break the news to my kids. They'll wreck the show. Um, the federal government has banned TikTok from employees uh, who use government devices. You cannot be loading TikTok onto your government uh, device. Uh, following moves that have been made in other parts of the world, including the United States, this to me is absolutely incredible because our prime minister has gone from embracing uh, the Chinese Communist Party to now like literally banning them from everything. We remember... When 
when Huawei and 5G, the five eyes and industry saying, like, we can't go here. We can't allow them, uh, uh, Huawei, to have uh, influence over the 5G network because of the ties to the Chinese Communist Party. And Carmi Levy, you, months ago, years ago, raised the, the issue of TikTok. And now... We are hearing that the federal government has banned its employees from using this on government devices. Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist with us now. Carmi, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, thanks for having me, Scott. You know, I take no joy in having been right about this. I, I think we all saw it coming, but, you know, I'm, I'm still shaking my head. It's kind of sad that Canada has to deal with this. It's kind of sad that we even have to dial it back to this degree. I guess this is the digital world that we live in today. So we remember talking about the 5G story and Huawei and all of that and 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 how long it took. Uh, the industry actually went on and made the decision themselves long before government did. How do you explain the, such a quick, uh, uh, quick decision here? I think what's happening is there's a lot of momentum outside of Canada right about now. So you have the American government banning it on their devices. U.S. House of Representatives passed legislation about a month ago for that. Uh, European Union, two major bodies in the EU have done exactly the same thing. There's pending legislation in the U.S. to actually make the app completely go dark in the U.S. It won't be accessible to anyone, government or non-government alike. Uh, a number of U.S. states are pursuing similar laws. So I think there's this global momentum now that really wasn't there when the Huawei story was being litigated. And I think uh, there's recognition that this isn't just about, you know, this is far more than, um, you know, a bunch of electronic boxes on cell phone towers. This is an app that sits on over a billion smartphones around the world, including hundreds of millions uh, of devices, largely young people in North America. And the fact that it is on young people's devices who are particularly vulnerable to the kind of data leakage that we've been talking about here, uh, I think that has spurred the Canadian government and others to action faster than would otherwise be the case. And I have to give credit where credit is due. Like, they are moving faster than they normally would. In years past, the government would have been studying this for months, if not years. Now they're looking around going, hmm, everyone else is moving in that direction. We better get going, too. Um, and you touched on this. Will this lead to a full ban, or will customers, users react to, well, the government's not doing this. Maybe we should get out of it. Uh, what do you think? Uh, should there be a full ban? What's the next step here? I think there definitely will be a next step. It, it, the story doesn't end here, Scott. It will continue, and I think uh, governments both here in Canada as well as elsewhere are kind of laying the groundwork for a, a somewhat get-tough uh, approach to um, ByteDance, which is the company that owns uh, TikTok uh, and has denied being, an, you know, being a problem, but we know full well it is. Um, I, I think, though, for most users, I mean, I, I've had this conversation with my kids, and the answer was, "Oh, come on, Dad! Yeah, I'm on TikTok all the time," and I think that's kind of the that's sort of the way it's probably going to play out across the country now is that you you have millions of Canadians, most of them kids, most of them teenagers, twenty somethings because that's the demographic sweet spot of this app. And they're going to look at this as yet another sort of step along the way, but they're going to shrug their shoulders and go back to their videos because that's kind of what they do. And, and no one really appreciates fundamentally the security risks that this app presents beneath the surface because it's a social media app. How could that be a threat to me? And we do that at our peril, but you know, this is the way apps are in this day and age. We don't think of them as 
security related when in fact we should. So I think, you know, millions of people are going to keep using it as they have. And the only thing that's going to, the only, the only step that's going to change this is if there is a full on national ban, not just on federal government devices, but on everyone's device. And maybe we are moving closer to that step. I think today we got a step closer to that eventuality. So how should users react to this, Carmi? I mean, you just say, oh, well, you keep using it. Or on the other hand, well, the parents don't want us using this, so I'm going to use it even more. I mean, (laughs) will they rebel? Uh, oh, I suspect uh, many of them will. I'm already hearing from not just only my kids, but you know, other kids of friends of mine who are saying exactly the same thing. Mom and dad, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm going to continue yeah. using my app. Right? You know, I want my MTV. It's this generation's version. Yes, <laughs> I want my MTV. That is it exactly, Carby. Yeah. Exactly. And, and never mind, never mind what the consequences of that are. Um, and so I think that's really what we're looking at here is that it will continue to be, um, a, a, you know, a, a phenomenal sort of, uh, it'll continue to play a phenomenal role in Canadian youth culture, uh, for as long as it's allowed to stay on. But I think, you know, there's still things that we can do. First of all, parents having conversations with their kids, always a good thing, regardless of what the government does. Um, and we can also go into our security settings and we don't have to, it, it's not a one size fits all thing. You can go and dial back the accesses that, that not only TikTok, but any other app ask for on your device. And so if you're not happy, for example, giving it location awareness or access to your contact database, you can rescind that. You can turn it off and still continue to use the app. And so I think we have a role to play here. Let's, let's, let's get up close and personal with our security features. And then I think what will ultimately happen over the next few months is we will see negotiations between ByteDance, between the TikTok com- parent company and the government of Canada and probably other levels of, of government in terms of what they need to do in order to appease government officials and keep the app functional in North America. That's probably a good thing as well, because again, we've been ignoring this issue for too long. Maybe now it's time we pay attention to it. You know, if you're going to try to corrupt the kids of another country or another part of the world, this is the absolute best way to do it on their device. Um, so this is not going away, Carmi. Uh, can they be forced to sell it? Can it be made better? Can it be made whole? Can it be, uh, you know, the threat be, be taken away? I mean, yes to both. Um, so I mean, certainly the U.S. government during the Trump administration tried to force ByteDance to sell off the American assets of TikTok. Walmart was interested at one time, but ultimately that deal went nowhere. It was challenged in court uh, at a number of levels, and it ultimately died on the table. Uh, but that doesn't mean that that can't happen again, that some other kind of transaction can't occur. And it also doesn't mean that some kind of negotiated settlement can't be arrived at that, you know, compromises, you know, so that, for example, the data, they can, they can if, if well, if ByteDance can assure us that the data is not being stored in China, that it is in fact being stored on Canadian servers or servers in some neutral third-party country, um, and that you no know, employees don't have access to that data and they cannot share it with the Communist Party of China, then you know if they can satisfy the government, then maybe yeah, maybe there is an opening there. But again, this is just another step along that path. I expect there to be negotiations to that effect in the months to come, um, and I think ultimately what this does is it takes cybersecurity around mobile apps, which most of us have been ignoring for a while, and it puts it in the spotlight, which at the end of the day, sure, we're afraid that TikTok may go dark, but it's a good thing for us to be talking about this because, quite frankly, we ignore it at our peril. Um, and, and even if it's just Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, they're collecting that information as well, and we shouldn't be blind to what those companies are doing either. 
as we're talking about this, Carmi, my kid sends me a website from TikTok. <laughs> I, I, I honestly, he's trolling me from from another part of the house. I don't get it. it. Oh man! All right, Carmi Levy with us, technology analyst and journalist. The federal government has banned TikTok from government devices. Will you do it in your home, uh, Carmi? As always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks, God. Appreciate it. All right. The other day we were talking about uh, one year since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And uh, I guess a couple of weeks ago we heard chatter of a China peace talk. They were encouraging peace. Now we're hearing chatter of uh, China supplying weaponry to Russia. Are we naive to think they won't do that considering how the West has been helping Ukraine? Let's bring in Dan Chiriak, senior fellow with the Center for International Governance Innovation and with us now. Dan, thanks for your time hope you're well. Uh, thank you very much for having me on. So, Dan, uh, we were talking about China encouraging uh, peace talks last week, a while ago. Now we're hearing more about how they may help them with reinforcements on the military side. What is the relationship here? Uh, is China, will China uh, prop up Russia when it comes to arms? So this is, of course, uh, a very, very dangerous situation. The war started, uh, the, the Russian invasion started, uh, as you will recall, following uh, days after China and Russia entered into a no-limits friendship pact. Yeah. Um, and so, and China has backstopped Russia diplomatically throughout the, the last year, uh, while it uh, claims to be supporting the UN and its principles and puts out a a, a so-called peace plan, uh, which, you know, on the face of it, it uh, one, uh, the two, two of the three first items would, would actually require Russia to withdraw from Ukraine and stop bombing Ukraine. And there would be, of course, then peace. But then it adds a lot of uh, uh, other things. Now, uh, in, in response to the fact that the Russian invasion has stalled, and as we know, there is now intense fighting along the uh, in the Donbass, but uh, there's not much movement in the front lines. There has been deliveries of uh, uh, Iranian drones to Russia to help in its assault on Ukraine. And then China has mooted that it is studying um, also shipping lethal weapons to the to Ukraine, uh, sorry, to, to Russia for use in Ukraine. Um, the worst thing is it is linking this issue to the U.S. supplying Taiwan with weapons. So this points to the uh, goes back to the very first uh, no limits pact, which in which basically China recognized Russia's so-called interest in Ukraine, while Russia recognized China's interest in Taiwan. So this has gone big time uh, geopolitical, and uh, and China is saying is is anticipating U.S. sanctions, European sanctions, and it is saying it will not tolerate these. So we would be then into a major escalation both on the military and on the economic front. Are we naive to think that China won't help them, considering the West is propping up Ukraine? So. In terms of, first of all, uh, Russia invaded uh, Ukraine, and that is a violation of the UN Charter. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in point of fact, were it not for the uh, Russian position on the uh, UN Security Council, the UN would have voted to have a UN uh, uh, a support for Ukraine. So all nations are actually obligated to support Ukraine in evicting Russia. Uh, 
China weighing in on the invader side is completely contrary to the UN principles. So there's no parallelism there. You can't say, well, the West is supplying Ukraine, China is supplying Russia. Remember, Russia was the second largest military power before the invasion. China is the third largest uh, military power in the world. Mm. Ukraine is down in the, in the 20s. So you have a major state invading and another major state then weighing, uh, jumping in, piling on, if you will. Uh, and yeah, there's just no parallelism here. So will that do it? I, my suspicion is that uh, it, it, they will be using this rhetorically, at least to put pressure on, on the United States initially on the Taiwan issue. However, uh, it is not to be excluded. And that would be, as I said, a very dangerous step, a major escalation, far more escalatory uh, than, than the West supplying weapons to Ukraine, which, as I said, should, is actually something that the UN should be doing in the first place. Uh, as we mentioned, this has dragged out for a year and, and just ha- has, you know, just turned into what it is, which is just this grueling um, um, annihilation of, of anything in its tracks. Um, will this have to ramp up before it ends? Or can you see peace talks working here? Or, or will there have to be some sort of significant event that ends this? Uh, the future is very hard to tell here on this one. What I can say is that the rhetoric coming out of Moscow is uh, uh, truly uh, uh, horrible. I mean, if you listen to uh, Medvedev, who's their uh, 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 prime minister, he is uh, talking genocidal terms about, uh, uh, you know, basically eliminating Ukrainians, de-Ukrainizing Ukraine, pushing uh, Russia's borders out all the way to Poland and so forth. Uh, so for Ukraine, it's existential. Ukraine cannot stop fighting. Russia can stop fighting at any time, and the war stops. However, it might be existential for Vladimir Putin and his crew. Uh, and so you, th- that is the, 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 the problem right now in this, in that Putin only knows how to escalate, and Ukraine can't stop. Uh, so the, for the Europe to have a, Russia succeed and push its borders out all the way to Poland. And uh, uh, that would be then to, to create a major uh, a geopolitical threat for it. Europe cannot afford to have Russia win. The United States, uh, can, you know, in, in, uh, in terms of its geopolitical standing globally, cannot afford that either. So the war must continue in, in the first instance and, uh, and, and Ukraine, from the perspective of the entire West and indeed from the perspective of, you know, the, the rules-based system under the United Nations, it has to win. It has to push Russia out. Um, so that's where we are right now, and the bloodbath continues. Dan Chiriak with us, Senior Fellow with the Center for International Governance Innovation, where we are one year after the Russian invasion of Ukraine and chatter of China, uh, helping Russia out with weaponry and such. Uh, Dan, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You're most welcome. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900 CHML and online.
online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Mr. Lowe wrote in to say, obviously, the Board, Ministry of Education, and College of Teachers have no real idea how to deal with this Oakville teacher dress code situation. By the time the survey results are tallied, it'll be June and the start of summer holidays. No doubt all parties will hope this controversy just fades away over the summer. Teachers need to remember that they must represent themselves at all times in a professional manner of dress and behavior to the students that they are entrusted to educate and model appropriate behavior. 